want peace? Do you want to be right? Do you want love? Do you want to fight? Celebrate. Today on Mountain Talk, we bring you a piece produced by Michael and Carrie Klein of Talking Across the Lines. Do you want to tear down? Are you going to smile right now? The Mountain of Hope organization, along with the West Virginia Humanities Council and Talking Across the Lines, LLC, are proud to present Dollars and Cents, working-class coalfield families discovering their commonality. Between the spring of 2016 and the fall of 2017, Talking Across the Lines recorded 40 interviews with former students, both black and white, of W.E.B. Du Bois and Mount Hope High Schools. Many reflected on their lives growing up in the coal fields and the impact of the industry on family life, health, and hope. Interracial connections fostered in an integrated high school after 1956 persisted among many Mount Hope residents who had discovered more that united than divided them. Nathan Shelton recalls that students watched each other's backs. So as high school students, we got along fine. There was no problems with that. The problems was with the parents because they wanted to stick with the old ways, black and white alike. You know, uh, integration was, was, was uh, traumatic for a lot of people, man. As the mining industry began to fade and neighbors packed up to leave for other jobs, the Mount Hope graduating class of 1964 threw their tasseled caps into the air and crowded onto the next D.C.-bound train out of town. Willie Ben Pritchett remembers that some were hanging off the caboose as the train pulled away. I had an uncle that lived in Washington, D.C. So when I threw that hat up in there at graduation, before it hit the ground, I was on that train. And the train was so crowded, we had to stand up on the caboose on the outside all the way to D.C. from here. If we had to fall off, we're going to crowd on this train, you know. It was just like you, you look on TV, man, you see them trains in India and somewhere, you know, with people hanging all over the top of the train, laying on top of the train. That's the way we were, getting out of here. Cut himself loose, so he's pressed against bodies hanging off a caboose. His dad was a miner, his mother a maid, so he's headed out for to find him a trade. And old West Virginia would just fade away. Could he start over, Lord, he'd find a way. My name is Michael Klein, and I've been excited to be working in this project with celebrated Coalfield historian and author of Coal, Class, and Color, Dr. Joe Trotter. 
His commentary for this program is excerpted from a Humanities Council-sponsored public lecture he gave at the Mount Hope Presbyterian Church in October of 2017. I just want to applaud the work of gathering these oral histories in a major cold area within the state of West Virginia, Mount Hope. And the spirit of this project is very supportive of history from the bottom up, you know, where you have working people's lives becoming the centerpiece for this story. Gosh, this time 50 years ago on a Saturday, like right now, this street would be buzzing with people walking up and down it. Lonnie Warwick. By 9.30, 10 o'clock, these streets were zooming with people going to A's department store. Main Street would be packed. Fran Birdsong. We had everything. New River Company was quite progressive. We had motion picture theaters. We had doctors. We had dentists. We had drug stores. We had a state ABC store. <laughs> it's a long way to Harlan. Long way to Hazard. Just to get a little bruise. Oh, Lord, get a little bruise. When I'm long gone, you can make my tombstone. At number nine, go. Roll on, buddy, don't you roll slow. How can I roll when we won't go? Roll on, buddy. He was really prosperous. We had seven churches. We had two movie theaters. Jerry Adams. We had a skating rink. We had a car dealership, if you can believe it. It was a bustling time in Mount Hope. And guys dressed up in suits. Lonnie Warrior. You know, they had worked all week in the mines. Been to the company store and cashed their script. They was ready to come to Mount Hope. Maybe some of them had already started in Flatties or the pool room or a little beer tavern down there already having them a beer or something. It was just amazing. <laughs> There's always a bunch of people in town on Saturday nights. Everything was centered around mining with the, the coal business, and our parents worked directly or indirectly related to the coal business. Jerry Adams. So anyway, that's the way it was. It was a very prosperous uh, community. My father was working for the New River Company in their machine shops. Jack Spadero. Which were these big, this huge shop behind the New River Company store in Mount Hope. The shops were, for me, this just incredibly alluring place. I got to take my father's lunch to him before I was even in grade school. I would take this lunch that my mom had packed down to the shops and, and just sort of stand there and then go get my father who would be welding or something. And I can remember all that going on back in there was so fascinating. Welders and the smells of diesel fuel and other kinds of things. It was just really fascinating to me to see that world as a five-year-old kid. My stepfather, when he was working in the coal mines, we had everything we wanted. Willie Ben Pritchett. He made sure we could go by the company store and get anything we wanted. He said, that's what we need in that mine every day. So we could have anything we wanted. And it was a little red tricycle I wanted one day. And I went in and there was a new guy in the store and he wouldn't let me have him. So I went on crying. The manager of the store told the guy, so you go catch him. You get him before he get home. Because his daddy goes in their mind every day to make sure that they can get whatever they want. 
My father worked in the machine shops for 20 years, and then there was a lot of layoffs in the early 60s, and he went to work as a janitor in the high school. The gymnasium had this huge coal-fired furnace that he had to go shovel coal into every day. It was all done by hand, you know. There is no way to match the oral histories about the experience in Mount Hope. Dr. Joe Trotter. What I want to do is to put this story in a broader framework of the state's black history. My father and his family came from Greene County, Virginia, a little place called Ruckersville. Betty Brown. And his father and his brothers came sometime between 1920 and 1930 to work in the coal mines because it was hard working, well, it's like sharecroppers for the big farmers down in Virginia, not making any money. 95% of the men in my community worked in the coal mines. Erskine A.G. When my dad was working in the coal mines, they had what they called a slate fall. Some miners were trapped, and once the miners are trapped, nobody can leave until they go up and dig them out. So, according to the story, my father was the only volunteer to go in and dig them out. And the guy said they can't imagine anybody volunteering to do that, but my dad did. Then came the day at the bottom of the mine when the timber cracked, the men started crying. Miners were praying, the hearts beat fast, and everybody knew they had breathed their last except John. Big John, Big John. African-American history in West Virginia is deeply rooted in the rise of the bituminous coal industry. Dr. Joe Trotter. During the late 19th and early 20th century, coal production increased from less than 5 million tons in 1885 to nearly 40 million tons in the southern counties alone by 1910. And by 1925, the state was producing over 120 million tons of coal. My grandfather, he formed his own coal company. He worked in that his entire life, and my dad started working for him as well. Scott Vargo. I can remember going up there in the summertime as a small lad. Of course, totally against the law now, and it probably was against the law then. But my dad had ponies, so he used ponies to pull the cars in the mines. On an early coal field morning, before dawn, I wake to find my daddy already gone. Mama baking biscuits, singing, children rise and shine. Daddy's driving ponies in the mine. Hooves are clicking time, cars are rattling down the line. Watch the reel of the timbers and the Daddy, come home. 
my mother packed me in lunch, just like my dad, and I'd go in the mines with him during the day, and I'd come out looking like everybody else, like I'd been mining coal all day. Good work ethic there. I don't think he ever missed a day of work. He'd go to work in the dark, come home in the dark, and uh, that was instilled in me, and that was just a good feeling to know that you came from that kind of roots. The black population in West Virginia unfolded along with this tonnage production of coal. The black population rose from just 25,800 in 1880 to 115,000 in 1930. Coal companies launched vigorous campaigns to attract black miners into the state, especially during World War I. They valued black labor. Betty Brown. I understand that people from the coal mining companies would recruit people to come to work on the railroads and the coal mines in West Virginia. The local black newspapers also got involved in the act. Dr. Joe Trotter. Many of you hear about the Chicago Defender as a newspaper that promoted the great migration to Chicago. Well, right here in the coal fields, there was the McDowell Times. And the editor of that paper named Matthew Whittacoe, he editorialized and wrote stories encouraging black people to leave the South and come to West Virginia. On one occasion, he said, and I quote, let millions of Negroes leave the South. It will make conditions better for those who remain. In another case, he wrote a long article and celebrated the movement of blacks into the various coal camps in West Virginia, including coal communities in Fayette County, Raleigh County, and McDowell County. My father came to Fayette County that way. Betty Brown. I think he may have been about 10 or 11 years old. And he said, when he got off that train and saw the, the new river, he said, I thought it was big as the ocean. Some of the incentives coal companies gave to black workers to come to West Virginia. Free transportation, credit at the company store, housing in company areas, and the promise of higher wages and better working conditions compared to Southern agriculture. I know how my father had to struggle working in the coal mine. Otha Payne. He had to quit school early because his father died and he had to go to work to support the family. He worked in a coal mine, but he got paid with the strip money, which was very prevalent. You've heard of strip, right? Rose Payne and Dennis Keffer. Each coal company had a little metal piece. It was a coin. They had it in increments of like 50 cents a dollar. Which was their money. And they had their own company store, they called it. That's the only place you could spend that strip was at the company store. Now, Man Hope has a company store right up here as you cross the railroad track. It's a big building. It says New River Company Store. Eleanor A.G. My father was a coal miner, and they exploited the coal miners and made them buy from the company store. They would raise the price on the items that were in the company store. When time came for him to get his paycheck, many times he didn't get a paycheck because he was in debt to the company store. I swore that when I grew up, 
that I would never, ever buy anything on credit and be caught in that bind. Some people say man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bone. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. It old 16 cards and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And it was a dollar for dollar if he spent his money at the No River Company store. Oath of pain. But if he wanted to buy from the drugstore downtown, it was only worth 80 cents. You had to go to the company store to get your money at a little bit at a time. He had already earned that 40 hours of work. So I've earned that money. So why do you have to hold it? Why do you become my bank? Which really wasn't fair, really. Lonnie Warwick. But that made the miners deal with the company store. Rose Payne and Dennis Keffer. Most of them stayed in company houses. They got on with the companies and they have their own houses. That the coal company built and you rent it from them when you worked at the mine. Now, was that a monopoly or what? <laughs> Said I owe my soul to the company store. Most newly arriving African Americans from Alabama and beyond quickly realized that the best strategy for survival in this strange and hostile land was to join the United Mine Workers of America, which for many was tantamount to a religious experience in worker solidarity and brotherhood. Something to sing about. People don't realize how important the black miner was to the Union and the rising up that took place in the 1920s in the Battle of Blair Mountain. Jack Spadero. At least 40% of the miners who marched on Blair Mountain were African-American miners from Fayette County and Eastern Kanawha County. That's hardly ever mentioned. And I learned that from Dr. Joe Trotter, who grew up in the coal fields of McDowell County, West Virginia. His father was a black coal miner. And he has gone on to write a coal class in color, one of the best studies of integration in the coal fields of West Virginia. My father was a coal miner the New River Pocahontas Mining Company. Dr. Joe Trotter. And he worked there for nearly 20 years until his death. And he was a heavy loader, worked eight hours a day and loaded tons of coal. He was a hand loader. <laughs> Ooh, this old hammer, Lord, it killed John Henry, but it won't kill me, Lord, it won't kill me, you can take this hammer, you can guide to the captain, 
You can tell him I'm gone. 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 A lot of people regarded poor whites in Appalachia as inferiors, much like blacks. That creates a different kind of dynamic. You know, it sort of merges them into a kind of class of poor people across the color line. On Saturdays and Sundays, we had picnics together. Lonnie Warwick. We socialized a whole lot together. Lonnie and Garfield Johnson, two black kids that uh, we played football and basketball together when we integrated in 56. They were really good athletes. My dad, my uncles, and all... They work side by side with blacks in the mines. Coal miners, black and white, usually got along and worked together. Bernice Clayton. My dad, when he was in the mines, one of his best friends was a Polish man. His wife sewed and made all of her daughter's clothes. And we inherited all her daughter's cast off dresses that were just like new when we got them and well-made, and then at Christmas she sent us a great big bag of all kinds of cookies and candy. They got along good, and that was even before integration. That summer of 1960, I was burned very badly in my dad's blacksmith shop. Nathan Shelton. As a result of that burn, I missed a whole year of school. I was in the hospital 19 months. I had more than 20 blood transfusions. I can recall a time there was always a bottle of blood in one arm and a glucose in the other. It went on forever. And I also had direct blood transfusion from some of my dad's co-workers, white men. I can recall one arm-to-arm transfusion and it was a white man. And he had just came from the mines dirt on him and everything. They just cleaned that up and put the needle in there and put it in me and, and transferred his blood into me. So I got white folks' blood in me. A lot of it. Okay. <laughs> My dad worked in the coal mines, as did most of the men. Brenda Hyman Jackson. And while most of the communities were segregated, the men all worked together in the mines. So if I went to town with my dad, he was saying hello and speaking to everybody because most of those men he worked in the mines with. The coal mines were very dangerous. My dad was lucky because he was a check weighman. His job was to weigh the coal when they brought it up. And so he didn't have to go into the mines for that. So he was really lucky. Well, if I had the money to do more than just feed them, I'd buy them some learning the best could be found. And when they'd grow up, they'd be checkers and weighers. And not spend their time drilling in the black underground.
of course, you're still going to be exposed to black lung because you had smoking piles of slag and coal dust around. He worked in the mines for about 43 years. Brenda Troitino. The guy digging coal next to you could be a black man. He could have been a Polish person. He could have been a Hungarian. He could have been an Italian. They were working together. We weren't taught to hate each other because we were diverse. Jack Spadero. And I have to give the whole community credit. We were Italians and Spaniards and Jews and Ukrainians and African Americans, all in the same working class status. It was close to a classless society. And I think that really is important. Some people think that black and white miners were indistinct in West Virginia. Dr. Joe Trotter. Experienced life pretty much on the same level. You know, that they were almost equal in their oppression. My grandfather was a miner, and he worked alongside black miners. Jack Spadero. As far as I know, he was not a racist. Because of that, his community butted up right against the black community in the coal camps because he was Italian, and they also were discriminated against, and he had experienced that. I was born in a little coal mining town called Claremont, West Virginia. It's in Fed County, just three miles up the track from Thurman. Betty Brown. And my parents got married in 1935. They met at Du Bois High School. And my father always said that my mother was the prettiest little thing in Du Bois Hill because the school was up on a hill. We left Mount Hope in 1944 because my father thought he'd be drafted to go into the military, and he wanted me and mom to be closer to her relatives. So he had a house built in Harlem Heights, and we moved there in May 1944, and that July I turned five years old. I was raised in Sun, West Virginia which is a coal mining camp about three miles outside of Mount Hope. Nathan Shelton. Come from a very large family. It was uh, 13 of us. My dad was a coal miner, which most people were back in that time. I went to a, a college school, which things were segregated, and blacks had their own schools. And every coal town here in West Virginia had a black school and a white school. I keep saying black, but back then it was called colored. Okay, The school I went to in Sun was a two-room school with two teachers who taught all of those classes. And they had paddles and would not hesitate to light you up with that paddle. And the paddle had holes in it. And it would, you know, it was okay then. In fact, my parents would encourage it, I guess. And it seemed like I always got more whippings than anybody else. But that's the way it was back then. All the coal towns, Red Star, Glen Jean, Harvey, we all knew each other. Sam Pugh. Our school at Glen Jean integrated. I was in the second grade. We already played together. We played football, baseball, basketball, and Cowboys and Indians 365 days a year. You were outside. You didn't stay inside like kids do today. We got along, played didn't know the difference. We were equal, and it made better people out of us. Harlem Heights was a very small community when we moved there. Betty Brown. Weren't enough children to have a school there. 
it had been formed from acres of farmland. And the land company bought it from the farmers and divided it into lots so that blacks could purchase a lot and build their own home. Whereas in most situations in the county, there were coal camps, as we called them, where you rented from the coal mining company. But my dad, I remember him saying he purchased that lot for $100 back about 1940. And then in 44, we moved there. At that time, there was no running water. You had to get water from a well. <laughs> we heated and cooked with coal, an old cast iron stove. Eventually, city water and city gas came into the town. There was no running water in Sun. We used to have to go to a spring, which was a couple hundred yards away, to get water for the school. Nathan Shelton. If you were one of the water boys, that was a good job because that way you could get out of the classroom to go to the spring to get water. Things have really, really evolved, and, you know, and, it's, and it's good. There's been a lot of good things that's taken place with integration, and it's getting better all the time. But there are some things that I'm sad that were lost due to integration. And that is the black community. When I think about Sun, where I grew up at, you know, you've heard the saying that it takes a village to raise a child. All the adults had authority over you as a child. And, and, and you would not misbehave because you knew that the neighbor would take his belt to you just like your dad would. You know, everybody got involved in raising children. And not just that, but the sharecropping. You know, you learned the gardening and everything else. That All of that's lost. You know, if I have a garden, I got corn and your garden's got potatoes. You did better with the potatoes, then, you know, switch up a little bit. You're gonna, I'm going to get some of your potatoes, you're going to get my corn. But this wasn't out on a large scale. Back in Sun, everybody had a garden. You'd raise some hogs and chickens. I'd go out to the hen house if you wanted some eggs. You, you know what a fresh egg is. Fresh egg is when you go to the hen house and reach under the hen and get an egg that she just laid. My mother used to make soap out of pork grease put lie. I don't know what else went in that, but it stuck like crazy. But she'd make soap and just learn surviving. You know, you have to cut wood and carry coal. And in sun, water. You carry water. We had no running water. You know, you always had chores. There was always something to do. So you learn how to work. You know, you had to learn how to do physical work. And of course, they named it Harlem Heights, so you would know, like Harlem, New York, is for blacks. Betty Brown. When we moved there, there were still a lot of whites in the community, a lot of farmers who had property. But as more and more blacks moved into the community, slowly they moved out. There was one family, the Richards family, their farm is still there. I mean, it's like, we were poor. Nathan Shelton. My dad would come home with a box of clothes that somebody had given him that, you know, and we'd all be going through the box, see what we could wear. I never, the only thing we'd get new was a pair of new shoes at the beginning of the school year. And that's it. My mom would send me to Ms. Richards to buy buttermilk and butter. Betty Brown. Bring you could pick strawberries and cherries from their tree. We lived in Kilsite. Lonnie Warwick. And the New River Coal Company started at the head of the hollow, which was Tamroy. And then it came out Oswald. 
and then we came to Callaway, and then it came to Killsite, and then it came to Mount Hope. Three little communities, you know, and most of those communities had their own little schools and their own little churches and, you know, and their own little company stores. But then when you got to Mount Hope, that was the big original company store. From out of Mount Hope, then you go on to Glen Jean, Turkey Knob, then on into Oak Hill, you know, all through Fed County, all through most of these counties, you find these little coal camps. They were separated. In Hilltop and Greentown, blacks owned their own property too. So Harlem Heights was just a newer community that was just starting up. And then when you come to Callaway, there was mostly black. Lonnie Warwick. But in Oswald and Tamroy and Price Hill and Kilsite, most of them was mixed, you know, because of the mines. That's how the New River Coal Company done it. In the Mount Hope, the north part of Mount Hope was white, and then you got into the lower part of Mount Hope, and it was black. As coal mines closed out where they worked, a lot of people moved to Harlem Heights and built houses. Betty Brown. Daddy bought some old houses at Claremont as they were being taken down and had gentlemen to come help him little by little to get the house under cover so that we could move there. And luck have it, he was not drafted into the military because he was exempt because of the type of work he was doing. Daddy was working for the Coke ovens at a coal mine in town called Fire Creek Coal and Coke, which is down the river a few miles from Thurman. There was several hundred people that lived at Thurman, and now I think there's three families. Sam Pugh. Did you ever know anything about Thurman? You talk about a town. It was worth 14 Cincinnatus in the heyday of the railroad. It did 14 times more rail traffic business than Cincinnati. And it only had one street, one little sidewalk you went down, but they had everything there. The banks, a lot of the theaters, the drugstores, the businesses in Thurman moved out of there to Beckley and Oak Hill. You know, it was a number of mining companies that set up in West Virginia during that time. I remember when Five Creek Coal and Coke closed in the 40s, and then Daddy went to work for another company that was owned by Scotia Coal Company in Brooklyn, West Virginia. So Daddy was always lucky to find a job. He never really worked inside the coal mines. I think maybe a couple times he did. When he went to Brooklyn, he became an electrician. And before he retired, he became a certified federal electrician in the coal mining industry. And he did that. He was the head electrician for Bolt Mining Company in Bolt, West Virginia, until he retired. The fact that an individual was black or white didn't have that much impact with us. Mickey Plumley. Because we all were sons and daughters of coal miners that didn't have a lot of money. But when you get inside of it and you look at blacks versus white, you can still see the racial stratification within the coal fields. Dr. Joe Trotter. And so while the miners may have had a kind of miners' freedom, the way their work was assigned could be unequal. Black men complain that, okay, I can work on my own, but what they give me to work with is a whole lot worse than what they give whites to work with. They'll say, 
we were forced to work in places where there was a lot of rock, a lot of water, a lot of hazardous conditions that were difficult to really load enough coal so that when it came out on the other end, however free you may have been to load as you wish, you couldn't load very much good coal because you didn't have a good coal scene. Went to my place, I peeped in, slayed on the water up too much, and they got the blues, got the blues, got the blues, Lord, Lord. Coal black, mine and blue. Unfortunately, being that my father was a coal miner, he would come home angry about things that were happening to him, and he would take it out on the family. Eleanor A.G. So he abused the family a lot because it was a terrible life that I lived. And growing up, in fact, it's very emotional. They even talk about it. But a lot of people went through the same thing. A lot of homes where black men were taken advantage of, and then they would take it out on their families. I got the blues, got the blue, Lord, Lord, cold black mining blue. I have a great uncle that worked in the coal mines, Nathan Shelton. And he had a leg amputated and he couldn't work anymore. He decided that he was going to go into his own business. So he went and bought a bus with the intentions of picking up and taking black coal miners back and forth to work. Where? No black man could own his own company then. No way. He'd take work from the white people. They wouldn't let him do it. When the miners would go on strike, and they'd be on strike trying to negotiate a new contract for 10, 12, 14 weeks, that's when the government subsidy commodity trucks would come around, and that's when people would help other people. Mickey Plumley. That's when we would give chickens away from our chicken coop to somebody that needed a meal. And I think it was part of that coal miner brotherhood, perhaps. My father was a coal miner. And he would always tell the story about, you know, being in the hole, as he would say, in the mine. Dr. Ollie Watts Davis. How he worked with many different ethnicities, many different races. And in the hole, everyone was for everyone because everyone's life depended upon one another. And he talked about the rigor of actually being a coal miner and threatened us to never become one. <laughs> Didn't want to see any of his children go into the coal mine. So, none of us did. Well, my daddy told me never be a miner. Said a miner's grave is all you'll ever own. There's hard times everywhere, and times are sad and drear. These troubled times, they follow where I go. And the green rolling hills of West Virginia are the nearest thing to heaven that I know. Though times are sad and dreary, I cannot linger here They'll keep me and the 
Oath of Pain. Only thing I knew, I wasn't going to be a coal mine. Uh, I saw the impact of what my dad looked like coming out of that coal mine. Because one day we'll have an accident in the coal mine and how it impacted people. Broken backs, fingers cut off, killed. Why is my daddy coughing? Why does he have to beg? To draw on the script that he earned in the mines. Why does he drag his leg? Coal loading took its toll on the health of African-American men, and of course all men. Dr. Joe Trotter, a son of a black miner, said, my daddy got so he couldn't load coal. He tried to get company work, that is light labor, outside the mine. But the doctor turned him down because he couldn't do nothing. He done broke himself down. My brother done the same thing. They used to be the heavy loaders. Coal mining was dangerous work. All coal loaders, black and white, were subject to the inherent dangers of coal mining. Explosions, day-to-day slate falls, black lungs. He's had more hard luck than most men could stand. The mines was his first love, but never his friend. He's lived a hard life, and hard he will die. Black lungs done got him, his time it is nigh. Dennis Keffer. And that's why the Union eventually came in, because black and white people were really very oppressed at that time. They could fire you if they wanted to. And if they did, you couldn't stay in their house. Dad got sick, and he wasn't supposed to go back in the mines. Bernice Clayton. He had a stroke when he was 47, and my dad died a young man of 50. So they had a special unit at Welch Emergency Hospital for coal miners. He was there. But United Mine Workers paid a lot of money for the cure of those miners there. Miners were badly damaged and broken by work underground. 
The specter of sudden death under roof falls or from shattering explosions was palpable, and always the coal dust with every breath underground. It affected the climate of African-American life. You know, this notion of optimism and forward-looking. Dr. Joe Trotter. But then there was the fear. In the interviews that I did, coal miners always talked about how they and their families had to learn to live with this constant threat that hung over men who went into the mines. And then in later years, of course, they built the Miles Hospital. Bernice Clayton. That was my first job. I went to McDowell, Kentucky to work. There was a hospital there, and there was also one at Hazard, Kentucky, one at a place called Harlem, Kentucky, one in Beckley, and there was one in Virginia. They were all Minus Memorial Hospital is what they were called. Brenda Vargo. Dad worked in the coal mines, and my mother used to say when my dad got to work, and she'd say, you never get mad at him. You're never upset with him because you never know if he'll come back or not. You valued your family because you didn't know if you'd see him again. Three brothers, all three of them were killed in the coal mine on separate dates. Erskine Agee. We were very close. It was a tragic thing, but that was what happened when the coal mines had very few safety rules. Carolyn Cheese. My father died in 1960 in a coal mining accident. He suffocated. I was only 11. As soon as the word went out that he had gotten killed, this house was flooded with community people. From the day it happened until the day he was buried, Someone was here all the time. Whether you were black, whether you were white, it didn't matter. That's the way it was. Once I had a daddy, and he went down in a hole. Jerry Adams. We had a coal mine in Mount Hope, Siltex Mine. 
It was in July of 66, and seven miners lost their lives in the mines. The 51st memorial of that tragic explosion brought together friends and family of the deceased miners at the drift mouth of the long-closed Siltex mine in July of 2017. I'm Robert Daniels' daughter. Rita Daniels. He was one of seven men that got killed. I was the baby who was here that day with my mom, who was only 18 years old. The very next day would have been their first year anniversary. I feel cheated because I didn't have him, and and I wonder why did you have to... He wasn't even supposed to work that day. The schedule changed, and he was put on, and... I just wish he didn't go that day, if he just hadn't went that day. <laughs> but my mom said he wasn't that kind of man. If he was scheduled to work, then he worked. And But so much could have changed in my life if he just hadn't went to work that day. A miner was leaving his home for his work when he heard his little child scream. He went the side of a little girl's bed. She said, Daddy, I've had such a dream. Please, Daddy, don't go to the mines today, for dreams have so often come true. My daddy, my daddy, please don't go away, for I never People heard about the explosion. I mean, these dramatic explosions that killed maybe 10, 15, 20 people. Dr. Joe Trotter. But the largest killer of these miners were the day-to-day -day accidents in the mine. A slate fall here, uh, some kind of accident here, and these men were dying. And by the end of the year, you could put all the big explosions together. It wouldn't add up to all of the men who died or lost a limb. In the day-to-day -day accident in the mine. Roll on, buddy, with your load of coal. How can I roll when we won't go? Coal was so mismanaged. We were always owned by out-of-staters, and I think that was our downfall right there. Sam Pugh. How do you stop something like that when the big money comes in and buys and they, they just took charge, you know. And in other words, we got the pennies, they got the dollars. Greed. And, you know, even now, there's still a lot of coal. There's still a lot of coal around here. There's a lot of coal right here. in the good old soil seams and the Beckley seams of coal. What do they need it for now? It's just not a needed commodity like it used to be, even though it really is. One of these days, you get cold in the wintertime, you'll be looking for you a big block of coal to light up, <laughs> and it's going to happen. But to bring these towns back, it'll, it'll never happen. My hometown, Mount Hope, is virtually empty now because a New River Coal Company mined all the coal that it owned. It's over. Jack Spadero. When I grew up there in the 1950s and 60s, every storefront was full. There was something there. The long-term investments that it takes to create other industries were never made by the mining industry or the government. We've never had any decent leadership in West Virginia that realized that. 
And even Senator Byrd finally began realizing what was happening with Culp. It was too late, and he was dying, and it was over. And Jay Rockefeller, who was one of the more progressive governors, realized that and said it at the end, but it was too late. He didn't have his power anymore. He couldn't do it. So none of these guys took what was obvious to just about anybody that this was going to happen and took the initiative to create a different kind of economy, not once. And unfortunately, the people who live there have been looking to those kinds of leaders all these years and haven't gotten it. So now they're embracing these false prophets who promise them the return of coal jobs that are simply not going to happen. The jobs in the coal mines have died on the vine. If you think you'll give one, you're wasting your time. Because old West Virginia just won't fade away. Can we start over, Lord? We'll find a way. Dr. Joe Trotter. It's not enough to really look at the history of blacks in the state and to locate Mount Hope in that history. But we also have to use that history to raise questions about how we can go forward and learn more about the experiences of these coal miners. To use history to inform future interviews. When John Henry was a little bitty boy Sitting on his mammy's knee Said the big fence tunnel on that CNO road Bound to be the death of me Bound to be the death of all me this history is not just about the past. It's very much about the present. In many ways, this story is about unfinished business. We're still grappling with the role of race and racial conflict in our own times today. The project that you are involved in is important for the discussion of where do we go from here in the future in building better relationships between African-Americans and whites and other ethnic and racial groups. Do you want peace? Peace, peace. Do you want love? Love, love. Do you want joy? Joy, joy to shower you from above. There's no more fighting to be done When you see yourself in everyone You don't care who wins You've suddenly had enough You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. The story of race and class in the coal fields of southern West Virginia is told by former students of both Mount Hope and W.E.B. Du Bois High Schools with commentary by Dr. Joe Trotter. Based on 40 interviews recorded by Talking Across the Lines, LLC, this program was written and produced by Michael and Carrie Klein with O.H. Jackson Napier. Executive producers are Reverend Charles McKinney and Jack Spadaro. The Mount Hope Heritage Center with directors Brenda Troitino and Tom Brown and the Du Bois on Main Museum in Mount Hope with director Gene Evansmore provided much-needed research assistance with executive oversight by Jerry Adams. Music credits are as follows. 
Do You Want Peace? Written and performed by Laura Sandich and friends on her Bloom CD. Train from Mount Hope, written and performed by Carrie Klein. Nine Pound Hammer, written by Merle Travis and performed by Leonard and Jim Stoniker. Sixteen Tons, written by Merle Travis and performed by Michael and Carrie Klein. Big John, written by Jimmy Dean and performed by Nathan Shelton. When the Whistle Blew, written by Nathan Polly and performed by Carrie Klein. Take This Hammer, recorded by James Sparky Rucker and John Davis on Heroes and Hard Times. Poor old John Henry's Dead and Gone, fiddled and sung by Robbie Crothers with Joe Herman on banjo, Michael Klein on guitar, and John Lilly on bass. Coal Miner's Grave, written by Hazel Dickens and performed by Carrie and Michael Klein. I Can Tell the World What the Union Has Done, written and performed by the United Four Quartet on Coal Digging Miners from the George Corson Collection at the Library of Congress. Polish Wedding Song, performed on the piano accordion by Nick Mistician on Where the Coal Trains Load by Talking Across the Lines. West Virginia Minor, written by Gene Ritchie and performed by Carrie Klein. Coal Black Mine and Blues by Nimrod Workman on Music of Coal. Mining Songs of the Appalachian Coal Fields, produced by Jack Wright. Mining Camp Blues, recorded by Trixie Smith in 1925 and reissued on Music of Coal, produced by Jack Wright. Hero, written and sung by Carrie Klein. Black Lung, written by Hazel Dickens and sung by Michael Klein. Dream of a Miner's Child, performed by Carrie and Michael Klein. Green Rolling Hills of West Virginia, written by Utah Phillips and performed by Jim and Leonard Stoniker. John Henry, performed by Sparky Rucker and John Davis on Heroes and Hard Times. Support for this program came from the Mountain of Hope Organization, Incorporated, and the West Virginia Humanities Council, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations do not necessarily represent those of the West Virginia Humanities Council or the National Endowment for the Humanities. For Hope, I'm Michael Klein. And the green rolling hills of West Virginia Are the nearest thing to heaven that I know Though times are sad and drear I cannot linger here They'll keep me and never Producers Michael and Carrie Klein would love to know what you thought. You can contact them to give feedback by calling 304-636-5444 or by writing to them at kline at folktalk.org. Thanks for listening to Mountain Talk on your Mountain Community Radio Station, WMMT.